You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Welcome to City Church. My name is Hunter Levine. I'm a college pastor here, and I get the privilege of working with our college staff and team of student leaders. And I just want to let you know, you have a church that loves the college ministry and the college campuses greatly. So for those of you who are a part and support it, thank you guys so much. It's my privilege to get to work with such a motivated team. Uh, and we're just so grateful for a church that loves our college students well. So thank you guys. We're in a series called Legit. And we're talking about some of the legit kind of things that come attached with the Christian faith. What, are, what does it look like to understand? What does real, authentic Christian faith look like? And in our world today, we place a high value on things being legit things being real, having confidence in them. I think about certifications like an EMT or a doctor or firefighter. We feel good knowing that there's some form of legitimizing that person to certify them to be in that role. That's a legit individual in the role. I think about websites dedicated to helping us figure out what actually happened in a world full of satire and fake news and all the different things that we see today. uh, Websites like Snoops where you can look and say, did this even happen? Or is this just a prank? I could go on and on, but I think I don't have to work very hard to say that all of us value something that's real, that's legit, that's authentic. Now, how much more important is it when it comes to areas that rest closest to our Christian faith? For the things that matter most greatly to us, that we do so in a way that's real and authentic and legit. And with that in mind, one of my favorite verses to teach college students is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul's writing to the church of Rome, and he writes this huge theological letter that explains our sin, but the grace of Christ, and he walks and lays out the gospel so beautifully in the book of Romans. And then he also kind of shifts it towards the end of the book, towards what it looks like for us to live legitly in response to that. And he says this in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not just singing God's truth. It's taking our life and laying it down in submission to him. Then he says this in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, what is legit in life? Scriptures don't always outline every nuanced detail that we experience today. But I once heard it said that we were given the blacks and whites of Scripture, the clear, clear things of Scripture, so that we can figure out how to navigate the gray. So how do we figure out what's legit? How do we discern what is good? The, the Scriptures tell us it's the Word of God. In a world that's constantly bombarding us with claims, telling us what to believe, how to think, how to behave, the way that we can know what is legit as Christians is through the Word of God and allowing that to transform our minds. And the reality is that every single person in this room, myself included, needs that. So with that in mind, turn with me to John 17. This morning, we're going to be looking at this passage and talking about legit community. This seems like a relevant topic for our world today. Just to give a little bit of context here, in John 17, it's a very weighty moment. It's the night before Jesus' coming crucifixion, sort of a farewell discourse where Jesus is looking at his final earthly moments of ministry. And thinking about what's going to follow for his believers, for his disciples, for the church to come. 
It starts with an important phrase. It says, the hour has come. Now, all throughout the book of John, there's several references where it says the hour has not come. It's not yet time. And what Jesus is referring to is the hour has come where he's going to the cross, that everything in the Old Testament is leading towards this final sacrifice, this final act of redemption of the cross. It's a weighty moment, a heavy moment in the text. It's finally here. And what does Jesus do in this passage? He prays. Jesus prays that God would glorify the Son, Him, through His work on the cross to take something that's meant to be a symbol of shame and to use it as a symbol of glory, a moment of glory where Christ can lift Himself up as an offering in our place. So He prays for that, but He prays for us as well. He prays for His disciples and He prays for all of those who will follow them. And one of the things that Jesus prays for in this passage is our unity, that we would know what legit Christian unity, Christian community would look like. Authentic. So I want us to read through this whole prayer together and then we'll talk about a few things surrounding unity. Jesus says this in John 17, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus shifts, begins to pray for his disciples. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, being Judas, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Even the most tragic moment in history was used to fulfill God's purpose. This is something that Peter would talk about in Pentecost in the beginning of Acts. Jesus continues, Now I'm coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now he shifts towards all believers. This is where I want us to zero in with our time together this morning, this last six verses. It says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. 
that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because your love, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and they will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be with them. What an incredible privilege to be able just to hear the words, see the words that Christ prayed in these final moments, including the words that he prayed for you and I. There's a couple important things about unity that Jesus touches on all throughout this passage, especially in the back end. One of the things I want to do this morning, I want to look at five important things concerning legit Christian unity today, based from the very words that Jesus prayed in John 17. The first thing I want us to see is that our unity must be in Christ. This is foundational. Without Christ being the center of our unity, there is no Christian community. And in keeping in line with what Brian preached last night, it's critical for us to understand the gospel does not just save us as individuals and change our eternity. The gospel saves us and it brings us into a community, a community of people who belong to the family of God. And at the center of that community is Christ. Paul would say the head of the body would be Christ. He's the thing in which unites us. Now there's a ton of challenges that come with this because the truth is that all of us still have sin in our life. We're becoming more and more like Jesus since we're saved. It's a process called sanctification. But this side of heaven, we still have sin that we're fighting with and wrestling with. We have different backgrounds, different beliefs, different ideas about how things could be improved and, and better around the world around us. But yet we have Jesus at the center. It's challenging because all of these people are coming together to form this community united by Christ. But we should be able to do this because we should have a posture of humility. Because there's so many different people in this room, so many different backgrounds, but the only thing that we have in common is that none of us deserve the grace of Christ. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul would say in Romans 3. But yet Christ has forgiven us. He's saved us. Four times in this passage, it talks about us being given to Christ. This idea that we didn't earn to be a part of this community. That we're united by the humility that we have from that. And it's important for us to know that the strength of our unity is not in the members but in who's at the center, Jesus. The strength of our unity is not in how savvy we are as a church. It's not in a facility. It's not in an ideology. It's in a person. The center of our unity is meant to be Jesus. This is why things like college sports can often have a a loss of community or unity when the team's not playing very well. Or maybe at work you get put on a task force. You're united by a common problem, a common result that you're trying to get. And once that is met, the unity's gone. Or somebody leaves the group. The the strength of some uh, unity is what is at the center. And it's important for us to understand that Christ is meant to be the center of our unity. That he's kind of like the, the bike wheel where all the spokes are coming together. He's the foundation of all of this of being built upon him. So we need to understand that there's strength from being united in Christ, but it's essential that nothing else be placed in the center. Something I also want us to see here is in verse 23, Christ doesn't just pray that we would be one, he prays that we would be completely one. 
completely one. There's a sense in which we're already effectively united in Christ. Christ has united us through his work in the cross. But there's also a sense in which we need to have a proper outworking of that unity. Or maybe a better way to put it is a realized unity that requires working through challenges with one another. That requires humility with one another. That requires us giving grace to one another when we wrong each other or make mistakes. That requires a lot of effort and inconvenience, but yet it's worth it because Christ is our center. So first and foremost, our unity must be in Christ. Secondly, our unity must be reflective of Christ. Something that's important that's happening in this text is that Jesus is pointing us to be reflective to the unity that he has within himself, within the Godhead. If you look back at verse 21, you'll see he says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. It's pointing us to this idea of a doctrine called the Trinity. It's the idea that God has community within himself. There's three persons, one God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all God, each fully God, and yet within God himself, there's different roles, responsibilities, relation. And what ultimately Christ is referring to here in the Trinity is the unity that God has within himself. Now, I know that's hard to understand. For many of you, it was probably similar to your experience growing up. Algebra was hard for me to understand. The way that my motor in my car works is hard for me to understand. The iCloud is hard for me to understand. But it doesn't mean it's not true. And it's okay if the inner workings of God are more complicated and out of my finite comprehension. What's important is not that I fully comprehend all the inner workings of God, but that I trust what he's shown to be true about himself. All throughout the scriptures, we see God three in one. Hard to believe, but important to believe, to trust that we as finite humans can't fully wrap our mind around the inner workings of God, but yet we see it in so many different ways of the Christian life. Think about prayer, for instance. We pray in a Trinitarian way. We pray to the Father through the Son because Jesus' work on the cross allowed us to have access to the Father. So we're praying to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit who helps move us. Think about even when we're saved, we're called by the Father. We're atoned by the Son. Once again, His work on the cross. And we're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or think about the actual moment of the cross that Jesus is looking to as he's praying this prayer. That ultimately, that the Father would accept this transaction where our sins were placed on Christ and his perfection was granted to us. That the Father would handle that transaction, that Christ would be the ultimate sacrifice that all the Old Testament was pointing to. And that three days later, that the spirit, that he would resurrect Christ from the grave. We see unity even within God himself. See, Jesus in this passage is not just praying that we would be united, but that we would be united in a way that looks like him. The unity that's found within him, working together, having humility, and ultimately working to accomplish God's glory. So first, we have unity in Christ. We want to have a unity that reflects Christ. Not necessarily a unity that fits every description of the world that, that we live in today. A unity that reflects Christ and what his scriptures call us to. Third point is that our unity must be observable. Look at these two verses. In verse 21 he says, May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23 he says this. He says, So that they may be made completely one 
that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Christ desires that our unity would display his gospel, his love, his work to the world, that it would ultimately point to him. So one of the many reasons that local churches and denominations are actually an act of unity as we're trying to get people together, gather them together so that we together can display God's work and how we serve one another, how we love one another. No, obviously no denomination is perfect at that. But yet denominations are efforts where people are trying to gather churches to be like-minded and to be able to be centered on Christ to display to the world, what it looks like to work together for God's glory. And ultimately, it's hard for us to display Christian unity alone. We live in a Western world, places a a high value on individualism, getting it done yourself, being self-sufficient. When you look at the scriptures, brothers and sisters, we are wildly dependent on God. We are not an independent people. We are dependent on God for his grace, We are dependent on God for his work. We are dependent on one another in Christian life. All through scriptures, we see that. And ultimately, if we're going to reflect the unity of God, we must be with one another. We must be in community, serving one another, caring for one another, displaying that unity together. Think about Sunday mornings. When we sing together, we're coming together as a group of people in unison, singing the truths of God's grace and mercy. What a beautiful display of Christ that people who work in different places, different backgrounds, different beliefs on certain issues come together and we sing in unison the truths of God's word. Think about the Lord's Supper where people who fit on all different sides of the spectrum of socioeconomic, all sorts of different things come together and we all say that we are in need of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. It's actually a proclamation that we make that we need Christ. We need his work. We need the work of the cross. And it's a reminder that we are all on level ground in front of the the, the cross of Christ. What a display of unity the Lord's Supper is. When we study the word together, when we work together, even when we submit to one another, all of this is happening and it's displaying the work of Christ. It's observable. See, Christ doesn't just want his people to be united because it's convenient. He doesn't just want his people to be united because it feels good, because it makes life nice just knowing that you have companions. Those are all great things. But Christ wants his people to be united so that the world may see his glory through them. What an incredible privilege we have as Christian people to reflect the unity in God and how we love and serve and work together the same way that God has worked within himself. The fourth thing is that our unity is not optional or seasonal. I know it's hard all throughout the New Testament as Paul is writing these letters, it's almost funny at times to read how he's trying to convince these people to just bear with each other. Time and time again in the New Testament letters, you'll see Paul bear with one another, have grace with one another, work with each other. In First and Second Timothy, Paul's writing to a young pastor, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus, and he's saying, I urge you to remain in Ephesus. In other words, Timothy's saying, Paul, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be with these people anymore. They're not listening. Every time a new person comes in town and starts teaching something, they abandon all the truths. Paul, I'm frustrated. I got people hurting me. I got people saying bad things about me behind my back. I got people staying at my house too late. They can't take a social cue. Christian community is hard. 
Timothy, I urge you to remain in Ephesus. Time and time again, bear with one another. Christian community is hard, but it's not optional. How can we fulfill all the one another's of Scripture, to love one another, serve one another? How can we submit to teaching together? How can we submit to elders together? Christian community, we, rec- we need each other. It's not an optional thing, and it's very challenging. And I also know there's other things that we're united around. It's not bad to be on a task force at work, to be united with that team, to be united around a hobby, sports team, whatever it may be. But the supreme source of our unity, the primary identity we have and the unity we have should revolve around Christ. And the truth is that many of us fall into the category of being united when convenient. Unity out of convenience. But this isn't the prayer that Jesus is praying. He's not praying, hey, for those who choose to be apart, for those who are mature enough to understand unity, for those who don't have other things going on, other plans. This prayer is for all of those who are in Christ to be united as Christ is united with the Father. It's not what works for us. It's actually what we work from. We don't do Christian unity just when it's convenient, when it works for us. We take the unity we have with each other and we work from that. Should be a primary thing in our life. So Christ is praying that we wouldn't see unity as optional or seasonal, but that we would see it as essential to the Christian life. Jesus is about to go to the cross and this is what he prays for. Not financial success for his people, not ease of life for his people, prays for their unity. And the last thing, the fifth thing that we can see is that our unity must be protected. Our unity must be protected. One of my favorite things to do is saltwater fly fish. My dad's a fishing captain. I love saltwater fly fishing. And anybody that's involved in the outdoor world can tell you that the gear with hunting and fishing and hiking and certainly climbing is one of the most important things about the hobby, is just having the right gear, having safe gear that works well. Oftentimes when you're on a pursuit, you want the weakest link in the chain to be you, the person, not your gear. You don't want your gear to fail. And one of the things that they do in saltwater fly fishing is they make sure that all of the reels that you reel fish in are sealed. There's a sealed drag system within them. And that seal, the purpose of that seal, and why it's particularly important in saltwater, is because you want to keep that saltwater out of the reel because if it works its way into the reel, what it'll do is it'll sit in there and slowly, over time, erode and rust and decay the inside of the reel. So they put a seal to protect it. In our Christian community, we need to have a seal. We need to protect it because there are outside forces that desire to destroy our unity and to see our mission delayed. Earlier in the prayer, Jesus prays, I don't pray that you take my people out of the world. Now, Jesus knows the world is a tough place. He knows that means persecution. He knows that means pain. He knows that means that people won't treat us the same. Of all people, he knows that. But he doesn't pray that we would be out of the world. He prays that we would be protected from the evil one. He prays for our protection. He's certainly praying for our unity as well. So ultimately, we need to see that spiritual warfare is a real part of life. Now, a lot of times we we get uncomfortable when we talk about spiritual warfare. We don't know what's going to happen next. But it's all throughout the scriptures. We see it as a real thing. And a lot of us have been more informed by Hollywood than we have the scriptures when it comes to how we think about spiritual warfare and the attacks of the devil. 
Spiritual warfare is not as much about spooking you with creatures and shadows on the walls. It's most likely bad wiring. Spiritual warfare in the Bible is actually something way different. Have you ever thought about how in the garden with Adam and Eve, when the serpent came up to Eve, she wasn't scared? Wouldn't happen in my house, not with my wife. Isn't that interesting though? She he doesn't scare her. What does he do? He lies to her. He entices her. Lures her in. Twists, twists God's word. Puts doubt in her heart. What does Satan do with Job? He doesn't scare him. What does Satan do with Jesus in the wilderness? He tries to buy him. Give you all of this. Entices him. One of the things that Paul says time and time again throughout the New Testament is, is, is that the enemy is looking to seek and destroy, but he's sneaky. He's enticing. He's deceptive. It's not scary the way that Hollywood would make us see it. And here's something that's so important for us to understand as Christians when we think about this because Satan does not want us to be unified and he does not want the mission to go forward. That Satan cannot undo what the cross has done, but he certainly can distract those who the cross has purchased. That Satan cannot undo what the cross has done, but he certainly can distract those who the cross has purchased. He cannot undo the work of Christ. He doesn't have anywhere near that amount of power, but he can distract us and he can try to twist the truth and he can try to cause division and he most certainly will do everything that he can do to try to delay the mission. We must protect it. Two big kind of threats that I see in our world today when it comes to unity. Well, the first one is this idea of vague, wide, empty unity. It's a unity that requires us taking what we believe to be true and abandoning that in order to sit, on, uh, sit underneath some sort of wide umbrella. An umbrella that says, well, it doesn't, maybe there are more ways than through Christ to heaven. An umbrella that says, well, maybe God's word isn't the only source of truth. And on and on, this idea that we need to abandon truth in order to unite. But here's the thing that we must understand. Christian unity without truth is not Christian unity. Even in his prayer, he says, your word is truth. We don't find unity by abandoning truth. We find unity by drawing ourselves to truth, by uniting around what is true, the way that Jesus has revealed himself to be. The second big issue I see is competing unity. If you're in Christ, there's nothing that you are more of than a child of God. There's no greater community that you are a part of than the people of God. There's no greater identity that you have than that you are a child of God who's been purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross and thousands of years ago prayed for you to know that truth and to belong to that community is the most important thing about who you are. You are not more of anything than you are a child of God who's been purchased by his blood. Doesn't mean that other things that we unite around are bad, but it means that ultimately Christ is supreme. You're more of a Christian than you are a businessman. You're more of a Christian, man, Christian than you are a certain ethnicity. You're more of a Christian than you are a, ge a geographical place that you live in. It's meant to be our main source of identity and unity. And the most important part about what we are and how we live is who we are in Christ. When thinking about the way that Satan often works to try to disrupt that, to take Christ out of the center, to get us distracted on other things. A friend of mine shared a song with me by a country artist, Aaron Lewis, 
who wrote this song, If I Were the Devil. He said this, if I were the devil, I'd find a way somehow to make man think he created God and not the other way around. And what you'd see on TV will seem like gospel truth. And I'd make right look so wrong, I'd make wrong look so cool. Yet anything to keep you out of heaven, if I were the devil. If I were the devil, everything would just see color. And I'd take all religions and I'd turn them against each other. I'd sit back and I'd love it, watch you fuel the hate, light fires on the evening news, and let them fan my flames. Bring everybody down to my level, if I were the devil. The greatest threat on our Christian unity is that we would be filled with doubt, that we would make things other than Christ the center of our unity, that we would be ruled by fear, that Satan would do anything he could to take Christ out of the center, to remove the truths of Scripture, and to make us believe that there's better things that we could trust or better things that we could unite around. There's nothing better than Christ. He's praying for our unity because he realizes that there are forces out there that want to see it destroyed. Father, I pray that you would not take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. May they be one as you and I are one. Our community, our unity matters deeply. And the only way for us to have legit unity is through Christ. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Number one, we place Christ at the center. Truthfully, this requires a little bit of assessing of our hearts because many of us, if we're honest, don't put Christ at the center of our lives. We often like him to be a comfortable aside. But when Christ is the center for you and for me, our unity is the strongest. We also need to know him. Not just place the idea of Christ at the center, but know Christ for who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. This goes back to the Trinity. It's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us three in one. That's why it matters. Because the scriptures teach it. Because it's covering every page of the scriptures. But we want to know him. We want to know who he is so we study his word. He's not just at the center of our priorities, but at the center of of our life, to know him. Third, we want to display him through the ways that we serve one another, love one another, have humility with one another, that the watching world could see our community and our unity, and in that see a glimpse of Christ. Fourth, that we'd have a deep commitment that we wouldn't be seasonal or treated as optional, that we wouldn't be people who love Christian unity as long as we're getting what we want from it, as long as it fits into our schedule, as long as we're happy. That we'd be people that have a deep commitment that say, I will build my life around Christ and around what he has commanded me to do. And if other things don't fit in, then they don't fit in. And then last but not least, that we would protect it. There was a, a popular image going around a few years ago where there was a father who was throwing his hand out in front of his son when a bat had slipped out of a batter's hand at, at an MLB game. And everybody loved the photo. It was, it was a, a beautiful display, one of his reflexes, and two, of his love for his son, that he would take the hit for his son. You know, we protect what we love. We protect what we value. I think the tough question we have to ask ourselves as we're studying this text is, maybe the reason that we don't care very much to protect our unity with one another, why we'd rather join forces with people who don't have Christ at the center, why we would make other commitments, higher commitments in our Christian community with one another, maybe the reason that we don't protect it is because truthfully we don't value it. We just don't think it's a value. But let's be mindful of these words that Jesus, before he suffers the most shameful, painful death on the cross, carries the burdens of our sins. One of the things that Jesus does as he heads towards the cross is he prays for our unity. If we don't value it, maybe we have it wrong. We need to protect it and realize that unity is not easy. 
It's not cheap, but ultimately it's worth it to, to work from that. I pray that that would be true for our church. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather together and to study your word. Father, in a world that has so many different competing forces and voices in our life, we pray that you would help us to be focused on you. God, we pray that you would allow your word to shape us, to allow us to know what truly is legit and authentic. Father, I also pray that we would be people who serve one another, who love one another, and do so out of a place of humility because we know that none of us deserved it. It's only by your grace that any of us are here. Father, I pray that we would be a church who's serious about your mission and that ultimately through these workings in this church that people would come to know you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.